Hello, hello, welcome, and welcome back to Blazers for Goalposts. Today, we're going to be taking a bit of a step back from talking too much about football on the pitch, and instead, we're going to be discussing football in social media and general fan culture surrounding football content too, which now that I say it out loud sounds a bit like the beginning of quite a dense seminar, but I can assure you today's pod will be at least one and a half times as fun. So, football entertainment and news in the media has come a long way from the days of magazines like Match Magazine and Shoot. It's come a long way from not much variety on the TV when it was pretty much just Soccer AM and Match of the Day. And it's even come a long way on the playground where the days of Panini or Merlin sticker books and chocolate encased power pods are sadly a bit of a thing of the past. Today, of course, there are an abundance of shows, blogs, podcasts, and other general social media accounts amongst other outlets where you can get your fill of football content. As ever, I'm joined by some old friends. And as usual too, we have a special guest with us on today's call. I'm really looking forward to talking to about today's subject. Before he's introduced, let's check in with the rest of the Blazers gang. Yoni, thanks for joining us. How have you been? Uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I've, been, I've been good. It was my birthday last weekend, so I had a nice time surrounded by family and friends. So I am in a good mood today. Lovely. How about you, Joe? How are you doing? Presumably you've been up every night um, too excited to sleep since you guys signed Hoiberg from Southampton. Yeah, you, you know me too well, Kai. In all seriousness, I am really happy we've signed Hoiberg. Um, I think he's going to be really good for Spurs. But yeah, I'm good. And um, I am very excited about today's episode, I've got to say. So I'm delighted to be able to welcome a man onto the show who I've been following on Twitter for a number of years now. Chris Miller, aka Windy Coys, is a must follow for any Spurs fans. Featured on the likes of 442, ESPN and the Evening Standard, he's part of the highly successful Spurs podcast, The Fighting Cock. But he also hosts some spin-off shows, such as the tactically focused The Extra Inch, and more recently, a non-footballing venture called 15 Minutes. Chris is also an expert on the Spurs Academy and has predicted the rise of many a Spurs youngster before they were known by the masses. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you on board today. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm still obviously in lockdown. It's very odd and it still feels like every day is a bit of a grind working from home, but I'm doing well and uh, it's a pleasure to join you all. Well, we're delighted to have you. And yes, of course, <laughs> this lockdown period has been very surreal. Um, but to get things started today, I'm curious to find out from everyone a football-related social media account that you've recently followed that you've been particularly enjoying. So for me, it's the Beautiful Game podcast, who are constantly producing fantastic material and having a lot of fantastic guests. No one as fantastic as Chris, of course, but they've had a few decent people. Um, but Chris, why don't you start us off and reveal an account that has impressed you recently? So I'm quite unusual on Twitter, certainly, in that I don't like to clutter up my timeline too much. I, I have always, in the 10 years that I've been on Twitter, try to follow around 150 people because I feel like if you follow more than that you don't really follow anyone if that makes sense yeah, it's yeah. very easy to sort of just miss stuff and I like to actually properly you know take in what my what people I'm following are, are tweeting um there's a few recently who I've, who I've started following and I'm, I'm really enjoying their stuff firstly non-football uh, John Byrne Murdoch has been incredible for sort of data and data visualization around COVID, but it's, it's not just his COVID stuff. He's got a whole new slant on how to present data, which I think is really unique and really interesting. So I would definitely follow J.E. Byrne Murdoch on Twitter. From a Spurs perspective, there's a chap called Griffin Football, 
he's called Luke. It's uh, Griffin FTBL. And it's been a joy to start following Luke recently. He's lots of kind of analytical, tactical pieces and snippets. And that's right up my alley. Kai, how about you? Anything you've been following recently? There's an account called Poorly Drawn Arsenal. And this guy, he, I think Yanni's probably familiar, he just picks like random iconic sort of little moments of players on the pitch or off the pitch and just draws them poorly. <laughs> and it's very amusing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in a similar vein to Kai, the one I was going to suggest is another sort of badly drawn Arsenal account. It's a guy called Eddie Longbridge, who I started following at the beginning of, I guess, the season that's just ending now, just as a genuine way to get some positivity or Arsenal positivity on my timeline, because I felt like a lot of the things I was seeing were just negative. And this guy's kind of over positive in a very self-aware and ironic way, but also does these like, quite hideous, grotesque drawings of Arsenal players and Arsenal figures and things. Um, and it's genuinely just brightened up my uh, Twitter timeline. So Eddie Longbridge would be my suggestion. God, why is there so many accounts for Arsenal where they draw people? <laughs> What's that weird niche that's um, emerged? There you go. Because we've got beautiful players. <laughs> Chris, we had a few direct questions for you before we get into the more general theme of today. And Joe had mentioned uh, briefly in the intro your 15 Minutes podcast, but bringing it back to football, because I know that you sort of discuss different things on that one. I wanted to know what is the best or worst even 15 minutes of a game that you can remember watching? Oh, blimey, that's a tricky one. Um, best 15 minutes would have to be the end of the Ajax second leg. Good job. Uh, I think there's no other option for from a Spurs perspective. There's a bit of recency bias there, perhaps, but it's getting to the Champions League final is one of the greatest achievements in Spurs' modern history, uh, particularly given the season we were having at the time. And I mean, it felt weird that it was Lucas Moura that did it because he's not a very heralded player. He's not a player I particularly like that much, uh, but he was just absolutely outstanding in the in the second half as a whole. But particularly, you know, the goal, the last minute goal was just insane and it brought me a huge amount of joy um worst 15 minutes there are just too many to list i think we've had some horrendous spursy moments um often seconds but often <laughs> up to 15 minutes yeah bad 15 minutes spells for tottenham sadly there are a plenty but um chris as i said earlier you were very much in the category of a must follow for any spurs fans active on twitter and whilst this must be a great honour to have people care so much about what you have to say about the mighty Spurs, it does come with its negatives too, such as trolls and abuse from people who don't agree with you. So bearing that in mind, what are the best and worst things about being Windy Coys? Really good question. Uh, it's thankless. Yeah, it's a strange situation. I mean, I never expected to have this many followers. That's the first thing to say. There's no kind of strategy for me at all. This is not a business development account. This is just a bloke tweeting stuff about Spurs. And I mean, I started on Twitter 10 years ago. It was a very different place back then. And there was much more of a community. And what you'd find is that essentially all Spurs fans followed a small core group of people and just interacted. And so I've had conversations with the same group of people very regularly, and that was really enjoyable. And then as Twitter started to grow, and as 
social media around football started to grow more generally. My following grew along with that. And I think it's partly because I was tweeting stuff largely at that point about the academy, which was of interest to people and something that the official Spurs Twitter account tended to avoid. I kind of formed a niche, but as I say, it was completely accidental. There was no strategy involved. I didn't sort of cynically seek out this niche to gain this huge following. What you tend to find then though is, I think it's, it's hard not to have a bit of an ego about it or for it not to impact you in some way. I mean, I'm quite a modest person. I'm actually quite shy in, in many ways. I'm quite quiet. So being able to have a voice on social media when I perhaps didn't have the loudest voice in real life, I guess it, it became quite empowering. It became quite useful. Latterly, I, I began to reap the benefits in other ways. So I got asked to write articles. I mean, you mentioned some of the publications that I've written for. I, I certainly didn't gain that based upon the quality of my writing. I'm an okay writer. I write reasonably well. But there are plenty of people that write far better than I do. The reason these people wanted me to write for them is because I had a Twitter following and it meant when I tweeted out their articles, they'd get more clicks. So I I was very aware of that from the start, but I was happy to allow that to become a thing because it was exciting to be able to write for some some big publications. So that's certainly been the best thing for me. I did actually get a blue tick. So back in the day when they used to hand them out like uh, sweeties, I I got a blue tick because I was writing for a, a newspaper. I was writing a column for a newspaper at, the, at that point and, and being paid to do it. So it kind of felt like it was a genuine reason for getting it. But now there's no reason for me to have a blue tick now. I've got no sort of more or less validity than any other bloke who supports Spurs tweeting stuff about Spurs. So it's very odd. I mean, as you, as you touched upon, it does have its downsides. And the downsides go from not being able to tweet anything without getting 100 replies which in some ways sounds like a fun thing, but it can be a massive chore. I, I, I certainly liked back in the day to reply to everyone who tweeted at me. That was my thing. I like, I would just, it's like a conversation. Is it? You don't just stop midway through a conversation with someone or you don't just say what you've got to say and then walk away as they're about to respond. So you kind of want to respond to people on Twitter, but it became impossible probably when I hit about 25,000 followers. You just can't keep up. Sometimes I'd have people saying, oh, he always ignores me when I tweet to him. And what I learned later was you don't actually see all the tweets once you get a certain number coming in. It actually, Twitter self-selects the number of tweets you're seeing. And the only way you get to see them all is if you then click on your tweet and literally go down and read every tweet below it. You don't get them in the mentions. So I felt quite rude. That was a bit odd. But I mean, it, it can be painful at times. Sometimes I just want to tweet like a flippant thing out about I don't know, we've just, we're about to sign Joe Hart. I kind of wanted to flippantly tweet something about Joe Hart. I can't do that for two reasons. Firstly, because I'll get 100 replies telling me that I'm right or that I'm wrong or whatever. Or I'll get people being, as you alluded to, quite rude, abrupt, and even occasionally abusive. So it's not as fun as it once was. I, I tweeted some anti-racism stuff, cause it's really important to me. And I wanted my followers to know that it's important to me. And I also wanted to in some way, in any way I could, try and help educate people and point them in the right direction towards reading materials and whatnot. And I've steered out of my lane. How dare I have opinions on things that aren't football when I'm solely a Twitter football account? So I started tweeting some anti-racism stuff and I quickly learned that Spurs have a very racist fan base and it was really upsetting. But, you know, there was a personal abuse towards me and then there was also 
people just being generally unpleasant. Uh, that, and that has certainly been the, the downside. I also, at one point, I had a parody account set up uh, about, <laughs> about me, which was very, very odd, very surreal. So my, my at is Windy Coys. Someone set up Breezy Coys and, <laughs> and used my avatar and just tweeted. Not even fun. This is the thing. It wasn't even funny. If it were funny, I'd have quite enjoyed it. But it was just rubbish. They tweeted really rubbish, dull things about the academy players. And uh, that was their idea of a joke, I guess. But yeah, real. it's a um, double-edged sword. And I've gone back and forth over whether I should set up, just set up a personal Twitter account and kind of try and enjoy it that way. But I think my girlfriend would have a thing or two to say about that. I already use Twitter far too much as it is. You sort of played down your writing ability and whatnot, or, and the fact that you were sort of given that platform because of your status on Twitter in the first place, potentially. But I think you're being a bit harsh on yourself, considering the, what is it, Wayne Rooney's like a resident writer for the Times, and people probably back in the day would have questioned whether or not he could even read or write. <laughs> no offense, Wayne. But um, yeah, no, I think, I think you're playing it down a bit. Yoni, did you have a question? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned some of the real downsides and the personal abuse you get as a result of having a platform like that. I mean, you've been doing this for over 10 years on Twitter, blogging, speaking on podcasts, just sort of tweeting and keeping up with the news cycle and that sort of thing. Do you sort of find that there's a pressure to be original or have like a unique take on something? And if so, sort of how do you manage that? How do you manage to keep what you say and think fresh and sort of independent when I suppose there are lots of people looking at you for a good, original, whatever take? Yeah, there's definitely pressure. I mean, there's, there's so many Spurs accounts now that ultimately do the same thing. And you start thinking, you know, wh why are you bothering? So, so, for example, we've got like, I don't know, 15 or 20 accounts that aggregate news and tweet paraphrased transfer stories some of which quote the source, some of which don't bother. Um, and that, that's just one example of how Twitter can become quite unoriginal. And I think it, it was easy at the start because I had my niche, I had the academy, so I was, I was going to watch academy matches and I was, as you say, putting out takes about players that others didn't necessarily know much about because I hadn't seen them play before. So I was able to say something original very easily. As I've stopped going to academy matches so much and I'm just primarily tweeting about the first team, I don't think I can be original all the time, so I don't necessarily try to be. But I always try and say something that I haven't seen someone else say. I really can't stand it when people essentially steal tweets. I, I find it rude, actually. I, I just find it rude. And I, I kind of wish some people would just hit the retweet with comment button more regularly and, and add something to the argument rather than just essentially ripping off someone else's opinion. So I try and be a bit analytical every now and again, or I try and be, occasionally nowadays, I try and be a bit more offbeat about things, or just make, it, make a joke that's kind of a bit of an in-joke for me and my followers, so that they're getting something different. But there is certainly, there is certainly a pressure, or the, back in the day there particularly was, um, to, to try and be original, and it, it is tiring at times. Well, now it's time for a game, and more specifically, it's time for Ooh, ah, yeah! So, we mentioned earlier, and actually Chris was just speaking now, about how he is a real expert when it comes to academy football. So, myself, Kaitel and Yoni are going to have a go at testing out Chris's knowledge. So, I'm first up, and the clue I'm giving you about this player is he started his professional career in the Spurs Academy. 
So you, you'll feel free to ask questions to sort of, we can whittle it down. But yeah, the first clue is he was in the Spurs Academy. Okay, how long ago are we talking? Uh, we're talking like Martin Yo era. He would have been kind of under 18s, kind of pushing first team around them. Are Yoni and I joining in? Um, yeah, I mean, you. I mean, I, I feel this one. I'd, if either of you get it, I'd be shocked. But okay. who wants to join in? All right. Is he still playing football now? I don't think he's retired, but he's not currently got a team. Oh, okay, unattached. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the obvious, the obvious one that might give it away somewhat is um, what position did he play? Oh well, this is an interesting one because at Spurs he was probably seen as a striker, but. In his playing career, he was more of a winger, I'd say. I've got a couple of names in my head. Uh, the first one that springs to mind is Andy Barcham. Oh, Chris, you've got it. Amazing. Really? Wow. Really? Okay, <laughs> yeah. So he was, he was a striker for the Spurs youth team, and he was, quite, he was fairly prolific for a while. And it looked like he had some real potential. And then ultimately, as is the case with 95% of academy prospects they end up finding their way down the Football League. And, and that's no bad thing. You know, it's an achievement, isn't it? To become a footballer, it's great. It's an amazing thing for a club to develop a footballer. And Barcham ended up, as you say, playing mainly as a left winger, cutting inside and getting shots away. But he's, he's, made a, he's forged a decent career for himself. Yeah, he was good. And I think he even might have played for the first team once at some point. Like, I think like a Carling Cup game or something like that. But yeah, um, yeah, well done. <laughs> I mean, I'm very impressed that you got it so quickly. Kai, have you got another one? Yeah, I, I do, absolutely. And what's, what's interesting about um, this guy is that he's played for three different academies, all of them in London. And from there, he you know, has made a Premier League career for himself. Feel free to ask whatever questions. Interesting. Three different academies. Okay. Um, what position does he play? He's a centre midfielder. Is he British? Yes, he is. He is. British central midfielder who's played for three different academies. Uh, and is, is he still playing now? He is. He's actually not even 30. Is he at Newcastle currently? <laughs> Joe's got it. Oh, have I got it? Nice. Yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> going to say that if Ray Parler was the Romford Pele, this guy's from Romford too, I'd say he's the Romford Pirlo. Oh. Did he, uh, did he play for the Liverpool? Yeah. The three academies he played for were apparently Arsenal, West Ham, and most notably Charlton. I had no idea he played for Arsenal, West Ham. But I didn't either. Yeah. I didn't either. So it sounds like everyone's got Chelsea, it. Right? Yeah, jo John Joe Shelby. Just yeah. yeah, I think yeah. I heard uh, Chris say that in the background, but it is indeed John Joe Shelby. Nicely done, guys. I think Yoni's got one for us. Yeah, so. I've got one. Um, and the clue I'll give you, two clues. He played for two London teams, including the team that he was in their academy, but didn't make an, a senior appearance for, and has played for 19 different teams in a 17-year career from 2001 to 2018, is what Wikipedia have stats for him. God, this actually sounds a bit more complicated than ours. <laughs> um, so wait, you said he played for two London academies and he actually played first-team football for one of them? Yeah, or, well, one London Academy, and but two London clubs. Oh, okay. I think. Um, what position is this player? He was an attacking midfielder who I think could play on the wing and uh, in the middle. Was it Chelsea, 
potentially that he played for? Was that Chelsea Newcastle? is not one of the clubs. Oh, okay. Was he playing for Charlton in the Premier League, this guy? Uh, no, no appearances for Chelsea. It's not Jerome Thomas, randomly. I was it... <laughs> no, it's not been, Jerome. Yeah, Arsenal Academy prospect, Thomas. He was a good player. Which so, league did he play in mainly? Was he like a championship player? Or was Did he play in the Premier League a bit or lower down? What was it? So he made more appearances in the championship than he did in the Premier League. But his career is so... <laughs> There are so many obscure teams in here that I don't know if he's particularly associated with one league. I don't recognize half the teams he's played for, but I have heard of him and I'm pretty sure all of you will have heard of him. What was the team he was most noticeable at? Like, what was his what team we'd sort of know him for? Or one of them? That's a, a difficult sure. question. I'd say the team he made the most appearances for is Wolves. That's the single club oh. he made the most appearances for. Um, I'm trying to think of another clue that won't give it away because there is a clue that will not, narrow it down extremely. It's not Jamie O'Hara, is it? It isn't. I'll tell you that he was in Arsenal's academy. Does he have a double-barreled surname? He doesn't, which is very rare for an Arsenal academy graduate. And he played for Wolves in the Premier League or just in general, like in that time where they were getting relegated? And it was when they weren't in the Premier League when he played for them. He played for another London club in the Premier League after Arsenal. Directly after Arsenal. Were they West Ham? No. <laughs> Were they Fulham? No. Oh, God. He, I, he seems to spend quite a lot of time in Canada, and I think that's where his last club was. Although the team he made the most appearances for in Canada was Toronto FC. He only played in the Premier League for the team he joined directly after Arsenal. Oh, okay. I think I might have it. Possibly. Yeah. It's not Rowan Ricketts. It is Rowan Ricketts. Oh, Rowan Ricketts. I used to love Rowan Ricketts. I thought if I said he played for Spurs, then that kind of reduced yeah. it to about two or three players. Um, I, I honestly only had space in my brain for one Ricketts, and it was Michael Ricketts. <laughs> I loved Rowan Ricketts. I, ne I never would have that. I just totally didn't associate him with Wolves because, because I just associate him with Spurs, bizarrely. Yeah, and that's as well where I know him from as a Premier League. I mean, I, haven't, I had no idea how he did at Wolves until I looked him up today. Um, I'm not going to read out every single club, but I would encourage anyone to have a look at his Wikipedia page because it's the kind of archetypal journeyman thing. He was racking up those signing on fees, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, literally at least two teams every year, it looks like. Sounds like yeah, maybe a bit of a difficult personality. Who knows? There's a story there one way or another. The advent of the internet has completely changed communication and the way people consume the things they're interested in. Whereas people would have to buy newspapers, magazines, and fanzines to read about their favorite club even 20 years ago, now there are thousands of blogs, social media accounts, and video content that you can follow to keep up with the goings-on at just about any club with a following. Some football nerds even decide to make a podcast with school friends eight years after leaving it. Everyone can be an author, editor, and publisher, and there is something out there for everyone. Of course, as the social media landscape develops, there will be things that aren't to everyone's taste and things that create some controversy. One of those media that attracts a lot of discussion and a lot of hits, frankly, is fan TV. And specifically, I think one of the, I guess, leaders in that market is Arsenal fan TV. Basically, 
based on the premise that fans after a match day will be ripe for a good questioning, a good divulgence of their opinions on what they've just seen. And it has created a lot of entertainment, but also potentially preys on a group of people who are in a heightened emotional state. And there have been many Arsenal matches after which certainly I and I think many other fans have been in a heightened emotional state over the last 10 years especially. But that's just one element of fan culture and the way that it's developed to the internet age and specifically the YouTube age. But Joe, I was wondering if there was any other sort of format that you've enjoyed and you've enjoyed as a consumer, sort of you thought it's a good product and something you're glad to have as a Spurs fan. I've got to say firstly, before I reveal what I like, I have been a big fan of Arsenal fan TV. It's <laughs> always maybe have a nice chuckle and certainly something to enjoy for when Arsenal lose. But yeah, I can imagine you and Kaitel aren't so keen on um, that particular thing. But um, for me, a more positive example in the last year is actually The Athletic. So The Athletic had been around for a while in the US, I think, focusing on US sport. But the sort of UK arm of the company has just celebrated its first year in business. And from my perspective, it's been a real success, even though, of course, to access the content, you do have to pay a subscription fee. I, well, I read a lot of the Tottenham content. I listen to the Tottenham podcast they have on there. I'm a big fan of Charlie Eccleshare, who's the, one of the Tottenham guys. But um, in general, really, I just really enjoy um, the type of articles they come up with. And even though they are mocked a bit sometimes, they have, like doing really obscure things. I think it's like, it's perfect for a football nerd, the athletic, in my opinion, anyway. But I am also obviously aware as well that the athletic does still have a bit of Marmite status amongst football fans. There are people like me that really like it, others that can't stand it. So, Chris, I was just interested, where do you stand on The Athletic? Are you a fan of it or is it something that you don't like? I've not subscribed. They have got some really good writers, some really, really good writers, I think. <laughs> they had this kind of transfer deadline day, didn't they? Where they just announced all their writers in, yeah. in one fell swoop. They did, it, yeah. It's quite remarkable just seeing tweet after identical tweet saying, I'm leaving my job to join The Athletic. Yeah. Uh, some personal news. Yeah, some personal, that's right. Well remembered, Johnny. Yeah, I mean, that, that I, I feel quite uncomfortable about that, if I'm honest. And I, I agree it's that, that the style is great for, for football nerds. But it does feel as though they're trying to carve out a monopoly, which might ultimately not be a good thing for sports media or from our perspective, football media. Yeah, I, again, I reiterate, they've got some fantastic writers and I completely understand why anyone would subscribe to their model because you get a lot of content for, for your money from people you probably will enjoy, but it's, it's not for me. Fair enough. Kai, I think you have similar opinions potentially on this? Yeah, I'm not going to rant. Not that Chris did, but I'm, I, I, I could basically is what I'm getting at. I could go on a rant probably. But um, for me, it's awkward because the subscription style is, you know, reminiscent of an age when you subscribe to a newspaper and they delivered the newspaper to your door and you read it. And that was a decision that you made. And if you didn't want to seek it out, you didn't. But I'm on Twitter, which is a free platform. And people who, as you guys mentioned, you know, once upon a time, not even that long ago, were probably producing free content. And now all of a sudden joined up with The Athletic and it's a subscription paid service. So it's not, and it's not like there aren't people out there who are still offering good content. 
for free. If that wasn't the case, there would be more pressure on people to subscribe to The Athletic. As it is, I agree that this sort of monopoly type thing that Chris was referencing that they're almost trying to carve out, I, I'm not a fan of the project in that sense. I think quality-wise, none of us are necessarily debating what they have to offer. But in the same way that Chris was mentioning not following too many people on Twitter so that you don't dilute the um, content too much, I'm not really interested in people advertising to me through their personal Twitters. And so I don't take, I'm not going to like sound quite riled up, but um, you know, the point is, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan. Um, I have more than one issue with it. Uh, what about you, Yoni? Uh, well, I, I do subscribe and I think I, I relate to all of your views here. Like I subscribe because basically it seems like a lot of the, you know, people whose writing I like and admire about football I'd have to subscribe in order to continue reading them, which that, that didn't feel comfortable because, you know, you're given something for free and, you know, whether internet content and people's writing should be monetized or not is a different debate. But when you've had something for free, essentially, and made very accessible and suddenly it's made less accessible, that, that, that's always a bit sort of difficult to take. But I agree with you in the monopoly idea that, it doesn't feel particularly healthy or sustainable to have everyone's opinions and everyone's writing in one place. However sort of nice or nice an idea it is, it doesn't seem like something that can really work long term. And also recently they've started doing it with podcasts. So I've seen like the Toasty Football Show has been almost absorbed into the conglomerate. And it, it almost feels like it's something that's trying to present itself as a plucky startup independent thing but is actually very very corporate in what it seems to be becoming um, and so that's a bit jarring even though i do still read and <laughs> like the the content that they produce frequently so that's my own sort of personal conflict or hypocrisy well we've certainly you know got a few people that like it a few people that maybe don't but it's certainly you know it's an interesting thing for the football media world and i'm sure it will continue to grow and Maybe one day we'll be swollen up by them and we'll just edit out the bit where Kai tells like, I don't like them. <laughs> we'll all be good. Um, but Kai, um, I know you were keen to talk a bit about the actual content that comes directly from the clubs. Themselves. Yeah. Before I do jump onto that, though, I think you, you're probably accurate in assuming that I would sell my soul to, to the athletics. I, pro <laughs> I probably would. I would. Uh, I definitely would. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, we, like I said, we've spoken about the athletic, which is in theory this kind of like independent source of, of football content and we, we also touched on Arsenal fan TV which is a bit more of a closely attached invested source of, of the content but these days often the most direct source of football fan content often comes from the clubs themselves with professional clubs accounts posting frequently on social media and uh, for better or for worse the comment sections of these posts have almost become like an open forum for football fans around the world these days. In particular, one club's campaign on social media has really stood out to me for overwhelmingly positive reasons. And it's AS Roma's endeavors to help spread awareness for and find missing children. And they do it through their actual new signing announcements. We've seen, you know, Alexis Sanchez playing the piano and Pogba dabbing all over the place with Stormzy to celebrate a couple of United's new signings recently. And to be fair, Roma were one of the trend-setting clubs when it came to quirky new signing videos. But for the past couple of years, they partnered with the National Center for missing and exploited children in the United States. And in Italy, they partnered with Telefono Azzurro. With the help of those organizations, Roma have used an image of a missing child in their new signings post, along with some other information to help spread the news. And actually in the past couple of years, 
several of the missing children have been found. So it's a brilliant story and clearly it's, it's made a massive difference. I was just curious to know what you guys make of this campaign and in general sort of what do you make of football clubs and the pedestal that they have to sort of speak out on things and work towards positive causes like we've seen Black Lives Matter in the Premier League. What else do you think kind of falls on the shoulders of football clubs? Yeah, I agree with you that Roma have been really brilliant. Uh, yeah, like the missing children campaign for when they've announced new signings is obviously a stroke of genius. And the fact that it's actually led to children um, being found is miraculous, really. And it sh yeah, shows the power of social media and ultimately the power of football, I guess. Um, in terms of other clubs, the thing I normally find, like for Spurs anyway, they did a, a survey recently. They were there. I think they're trying to start some new sort of like Man U TV-esque thing and they were asking about their content and to be honest Spurs' content is basically just like showing old goals from previous matches and then a few like really cheesy sponsor videos like is it that Drake sorry Eagle. is it that, that Ricky Villa goal that they love that's probably the one that they've just got on loop yeah I mean I'd, I'll happily watch <laughs> that one that's quality but like they'll just like oh we're playing West Ham so for the billionth time let's see Son's long range goal against which is or fine let's see but, uh, Eric Dyer's winning, winner on his debut yeah, I mean, again, like, I love that. But yeah, it's just like, it, it does. So, I do sometimes feel the clubs themselves are maybe, maybe lazy isn't the right word because I don't know how restricted their kind of like marketing teams are at like putting stuff out there. And they've obviously got to like satisfy all the sponsors. But to be honest, like Roma are really one of the only teams I can think of that are doing really interesting things. And they always seem to be the trendsetters or they're, they are kind of like dictating where football clubs should be going with social media. But yeah, Yoni or Chris, have you seen anything else from any other clubs that you've liked or maybe stuff that is just shit and you really don't like? Uh, I, I think if we're generally looking for ethical endeavours in football, particularly elite level football, we're probably looking in the wrong place. And, and in many ways, that's why Roma stands out because they are very much the exception, not the rule. I'd love to know where their inspiration came from to do that and and also how it's impacted on them monetarily what they've given up to do that because it is absolutely remarkable uh, what they're doing it's incredible it's such an incredible thing and you know i'm sure roma do lots of bad things as well so they're not they're not like a this bastion of i don't know good faith but um it's, it's, it's impressive that they can use their platform to do something good and actually in a really simple but highly effective way, a highly visible way. And I, I would love to see Spurs do something similar. I'd be very proud of Spurs doing something similar. But as you mentioned, Joe, it's normally fairly sort of run-of-the-mill stuff from Spurs' social media. They've always been so overly conservative with their use of social media. I remember... Um, the first British or English team that I noticed doing exciting, novel, interesting things was Man City. They went big quite early on with their social media stuff. They bought a really big social media team. I understand they had something like 15 people working on social media when Spurs had one or two. And it was really, really, really noticeable. And it was around the time, do you remember these, they were the first team to do tunnel cam as well? Oh, and yeah. So you'd, you'd get to see this kind of post-match tunnel cam, which was initially it was really interesting because you'd never sort of seen this behind the scenes footage of, of how players interact with other club employees and with each other in the tunnel and it was great it was really kind of insightful and um, obviously it became fairly uninteresting 
quickly because we've seen it all. Once you've seen one or two of tunnel cams, you've seen all tunnel cams. But they were actually trying to do stuff. And that was really interesting to me. I don't know if they still do, to be honest. I've, I've not looked. But um, yeah, you don't get a lot of interest from um, these kind of corporate accounts. And the interesting thing about the Black Lives Matter issue was that all the clubs were very quick to, to post their support in these kind of social media posts on Instagram or Twitter but they're not really doing anything to actually support the cause in any meaningful way. So you look at their boardrooms, are they doing anything there? No, certainly not many football clubs are doing much to actually have a positive impact. So it all felt a little bit cheap to me. Having said that, Spurs have just appointed two black coaches. So that's, that's a step in the right direction. So I'll, I'll defend them on that point. Chris, it's, it's interesting. Um, you mentioned that Spurs, and Joe, you mentioned it as well, social media for a long time now has been pretty like middle, middle of the road kind of conservative. Do you think that that is a lack of creativity, a lack of ambition on their end? Or as you alluded to earlier, given some of the issues that you've had with Spurs' fan base, are they working under that assumption and they know that, you know, the sort of fire that they could be playing with and they don't want to put something out there that's too volatile that could lead to something that in the, at the end of the day looks, reflects poorly on the club because some type of conversation develops in the comments or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's a really astute point. I think that is very much, that's the issue. They don't trust themselves. They don't back themselves to do things in a way which kind of protects the club. I mean, to be honest, I've, I've known a couple of the Spurs social media people, not, not known well, but I've um, you know, interacted with them and they've been really good people, full of good ideas. And my, my guess is that the person who is in ultimate control of that is too risk averse. I mean, Spurs are quite a risk averse club generally under Daniel Levy's stewardship. And, you know, in, in many ways, that's no bad thing. But when it comes to social media, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not the most exciting. I actually stopped following Spurs official for a while because I was just bored. Um, <laughs> they follow me, actually. They follow me from, from back in the day when I won a competition in the very, very early days of Twitter. And they followed me so that they could DM me and uh, send me my prize. And they've never stopped following me since. And I always wonder what they, what they think of my, my tweets about Spurs. <laughs> well, that's, um, that's great. What we're talking about next is kind of around the banter side of clubs. I don't know if you've, I've seemed to have noticed, um, it seems to be a lot of the German teams that have English speaking accounts. They seem to be very, good well it depends it depends how, how you see it but very good at like the banter side of social media is that content chris that you enjoy and that's actually funnier to see than just the the classic standard stuff we see on the spurs channels or do you find that a little bit cringe as well and it's just a little bit trying too hard sort of thing i am definitely not their target audience um <laughs> it's i mean it gets clicks doesn't it you see these football banter accounts getting shared so much on Facebook, on Twitter, so you can completely understand from a kind of business development strategy kind of point of view. You can see why they do it. They make, they make money. They make a lot of money from this. But yeah, it's, it's not for me. Fans of that kind of banter would find my football banter terrible, but mine is much more sort of um, studious, I would say. I mean, you've got such a great platform. You could, have you ever been tempted to just wind up Arsenal fans or chill, just, you know, because you, you can literally put something out and then it will piss off, <laughs> you know, lo loads of people. Have you, are you tempted to ever stir the pot in that way? So every now and again, I will just, I'll just poke the hornet's nest a little bit and I, I really enjoy the interactions that follow. <laughs> um, 
uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't tweet stuff so that people can see it, but I'll tweet replies to stupid Arsenal fans or, or whatever club fans. And then have a bit of a back and forth. And occasionally I'll get like a Spurs fan favoriting the tweet because they've just gone and had a look at my tweets and, and spotted it. Um, yeah, I definitely take some enjoyment from that every now, every now and again. But it's, uh, yeah, it's not really my thing to sort of tweet bants on, a, on, a, on the regs. <laughs> Fair enough. I do, I do wonder who authorises it or whose strategy it is specifically. Because I don't know if it affects the wider perception of Borussia Mönchengladbach if you know the tweet they're putting out to their more global audience is full of bants or whatever but it's so different from the sort of comms strategy of their native language accounts that it could almost it could almost be a parody account like that's how far apart that's how like dissonant but similar they are and i wonder like who authorizes it and beyond just oh kind of creating content that people will click on and maybe that is the be all and end all but what purpose it is trying to serve I suspect it's trying to get um, English fans to have a second team to, who might be a, a German club in the hope that they'll sell a few more shirts I, I, or maybe even travel over and go to a match and then become a bit more embedded in, in their fandom. I think it's as cynical as that. Yeah, that's a good point. The recent kind of um, epicenter of banter for the past couple of weeks has been the, uh, the Farmers League reference that's been like flying around twitter with Liga having you know Mar or psg what was it probably like their 500th title in a row that they won but um uh, otherwise one thing that i do like which is sort of a crossover of entertainment mediums that arsenal have done recently and i'm not sure if other clubs are doing it is arsenal have jumped on the uh goggle box type bandwagon if you guys are familiar with that show and they've been releasing footage of fans watching the games recently and in particular, there's a couple of families like on Gogglebox that you become familiar with and they bring them back each week. In particular, there's this grandson and grandmother pairing where the grandma literally has, she says she's an Arsenal fan. I don't know if she knows what day of the week it is. She has no clue what's going on whatsoever, but her grandson is just, and between the two of them, they're so endearing. I think that's quite fun. You know, as fans, we can all sort of, especially today, in these days when there's no football fans in stadiums, it, it's really nice to see people in their living rooms just going as mental as the rest of us. So that's been something that I think um, Arsenal at least were quite um, smart to jump on. I've enjoyed it, at least. I suppose they might have done that as well, though, just to combat the, like, the freak show that is Arsenal Fan TV. Yeah, it's a bit more wholesome than those guys. <laughs> I do wonder when I've seen that, though, sort of, if I had a camera in my living room as I'm watching Arsenal, like how, how unfiltered would I actually be? Like, would, would I actually be able to be authentic or would I be like, I don't know, somehow performing something or, and that's the same with Arsenal Fan TV, really. If I've got a camera in my face after the game, will I need to like feel the need to say something for the sake of saying something or is it actually going to capture something authentic? But I guess in this weird like era of no fans anywhere, it is at least something to counteract that. Yeah, I was going to say my footage would probably have to be severely edited heavily. Friend of the podcast and Republic of Ireland footballer Aidan O'Brien will have had Sunderland fans across Wearside saying away the lads recently after he signed for the Black Cats. But today I'm posing the question, away which lads? As ever, 
I'm looking for you lot to name one of the starting 11s from a given match day that I've chosen from the past. I'll have clues for you if you need them, but in keeping with today's theme, the particular games I've chosen stood out because of unusual events during the 90 minutes that ended up going a bit viral. Listeners, please do play along too. See if you can do better than these guys. So this game, the first one, took place on March 1st, 2014 at Hull City's KCOM Stadium, and it finished 4-1 to Newcastle. Off the pitch, just off the pitch, albeit on the sideline, actually, this game was made infamous for a confrontation between Hull City's David Mailer and the then Magpies boss, Alan Pardew. I've referenced Alan Pardew's dance moves on the touchline before on this podcast, but this time, instead of channeling his inner John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever, he sort of stuck to football and instead channeled his inner Zidane. But unfortunately, by that, I mean he headbutted David Mailer. So I'm looking for Newcastle's lineup from that day. Go for it, guys. So Tim Krull in goal? Yeah, Tim Krull was in goal. Okay. Danny Simpson at right back? No, actually. This right back is much better than Danny Simpson, although unlike Danny Simpson, he hasn't won the Premier League. Debussy. Yeah. <laughs> that's my Arsenal cap on and why I, why I rate Debussy. Even yeah, that's that's what I figured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess Steven Taylor was probably a player. No, Steven Taylor oh. was not in the starting 11. Uh, Colaccini? No, Fabrizio was, was not there either. Was rest in peace Czech Teote play? He was. So you've got Czech Teote rest in peace, as you said. Uh, was was Williamson playing? Well, I heard Williamson. Yeah, t- both of them. You know, uh, Will- okay. Mike Williamson, I heard uh, Yanni say that. And then if it was Chris mentioning Sissoko, he actually scored a brace. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Um, you've got those guys. Can't imagine him scoring a brace, but nice to know it happened at some point. Um, Happy Cissé up front, perhaps, or is that too early for him? I think slightly too early, but I'll give you a clue that there's two other Frenchmen on the pitch. Three, three other Frenchmen on the pitch, besides Tio Sissoko, so there would have been four all in total. Was, was Remy up front? Loic got another goal. He was, he was up front, Loic Remy. Cool. Was Gabriel Oberton? No, he's not one of the Frenchmen. Yeah, one of them's a defender and one of them's a forward. Oh, Yanga Mbiwa. Yeah, Mapu. Yanga Mbiwa, who <laughs> won the league with uh, Montpellier. He was in that same team as Giroud and was actually probably the most highly rated player, but his career a bit didn't, didn't got, really live up to it. He got headbutted by Messi once in a preseason game. I was randomly oh, at at the new Um <laughs> What else? So um, part of you was headbutting Mailer and Messi was headbutting Yanga. Oh, yeah. So there's the headbutt thing. Um, at left back, was it Haidara? No, this guy still plays for Newcastle, I think, at left back. He's a bit of an academy guy. He's just been there. Oh. Paul Dummett. Paul Dummett. Yeah, Paul yeah. Dummett, the Welshman. Okay. What so about, got... um, who was that kind of um, attacking midfielder, French attacking midfielder? Oh, uh, to it, maybe. Oh, actually, I think I know who you're talking about. But Hatem Ben Arthur. Oh, ben. I thought you were going to go for Remy Cabella, Cabella, but neither of them. Or Johan Kabai. None, none Kabai? Of no, yeah. just, now no. I'm just realising how many French players they had. Um, but no, this guy played for, I think, Bordeaux. Was it Sylvain Malvo? No. Oh. <laughs> Another one that is French, but isn't, <laughs> isn't who I'm asking What positions about. are we missing? Right now, you've got the whole back four and the keeper. So you're just missing a centre midfielder and two of the forwards. And two of the players are Dutch and one of them is French. De Jong? One of the Diongs? Yeah, you've got to tell me which Diong. Luke. 
yeah. scorer of Europa League semi-final yeah. winner. <laughs> Luke de Jong, I think CM de Jong, his brother, joined a few years later. He also played uh, I think I know who the midfielder is, and I can't remember his name. He's got Anita. Anita. Yeah, Vernon. Oh, Vernon Anita. Anita. Well yeah. done. Well done. And then a French striker. Yeah, this was the guy who played for Bordeaux. I think he might. This probably isn't going to help you, but I think he might have played for Grenoble or something like that, or Strasbourg in his youth. He was quite oh. highly rated. Oh, is it Sy- Henry Saive? No, it's not. Although he definitely played for Bordeaux, Saive. And I think that this guy who I'm talking about also played for Bordeaux or maybe Marseille. It's quite hard to describe him. He was a bit of a winger, a bit of a striker. Yeah, he was decent for them. Oh, Johan Gouffron. Yeah, Yanni's done it. Johan Gouffron. Well done. done. Well, (laughs) I just quickly want to reference, uh, as this is, you know, we're talking about football in the media and whatnot, uh, some some tweets that sort of came out in the aftermath of that game in response to the, the headbutting incidents. And, Newsfox, who is at the Newsfox on Twitter, said, Alan Pardew explains his headbutt was designed to impress new boss Vince McMahon. So, <laughs> uh, a bit of a WWE professional wrestling joke there. And then RDS, who is at J A E Y A A R, or at Jayar on Twitter, said, Only Alan Pardew would push someone away using his head rather than his hands. Ellipses dot dot dot. Hashtag he goat. So, RDS was a fan of, of, um, Pardew's headbutting performance on that day. I do have another game for you guys, so let's get through that. And this took place on October 27th, 2013, between Swansea and West Ham at the Liberty Stadium. It finished nil-nil, but despite the scoreline, this game was memorable for another touchline clash. This time between Sam Allardyce, the manager of West Ham at the time, and Swansea's Chico Flores. Allardyce took issue with Flores' overly dramatic reaction to a foul, and then proceeded to emphatically laugh in the Spaniard's face, an image that went viral at the time, and more recently, a few years ago, Chico spoke out on the incident and posted the infamous image of him and Allardyce on his Twitter. But he's photoshopped a pair of sunglasses over his own face and he's put a massive spliff into his mouth to jump onto the thug life editing trend, so to speak. Um, but all he's really saying by posting that is that he's basically saying he couldn't care less about what Allardyce did. Um, this this I, got mentioned before in the Anthony Costa episode. Yeah, I think John brought this one up. Um, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, Chico was was the subject of our Who Are You? But um, this time I'm looking for the Hammers starting eleven from that fateful day. Was it Adrian in goal? No, I don't know if he was there yet. Oh, um, the goalkeeper's a Premier League legend. You see? Yeah, you see. Yes. Linen is in goal. Was Winston Reid one of the centre backs? Yeah, he was. Okay. Guy Demel at right back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, I'm impressed that you got that so quickly. Guy Demel was at right Guy back. Demel. you got to love Guy Demel. Uh, mm. Joey O'Brien, centre-back? No, Joey's not in there, but another sort of... Well, Joey would have come from Bolton, I guess, but this guy's a West Ham Academy player. James Tompkins? Yeah, James Tompkins with Winston Reid. Is the left-back um, Sunderland West Ham yo-yo man, George McCartney? The left back is the most random West Ham left back in probably the history of their club. Um, is it Pedro Almero? I don't know who that is. Also, <laughs> also no. I mean, so uh, the, he's the second most random left back in the history <laughs> of West Ham. Potentially. Um, so Mark Noble must be playing. Yeah, Noble's in there. And Diame, I imagine, partnered him. Yep. Nicely done. The striker scored the goal that 
promoted them the season before in the playoff oh, final. Ricardo Vazte. Ricardo Vazte, indeed. Who was actually <laughs> random. He was that was probably the best spell of his entire career. Although I think he'd actually joined for joined them off the back of a good spell with Barnsley. So maybe Tykes, Barnsley fans, will uh, will resent <laughs> what I've just said. <laughs> was Matt Jarvis there? No, not yet. He was probably still tearing it up at Molyneux. Stuart Downing. Yeah, I honestly did not remember that he played for them. But yes, I could only remember like Liverpool and Villa and Middlesbrough. But yeah, he, he was playing. So what we're we missing? The... Quite okay, so I'll tell you that Yaskalainen played for Bolton. Vaz Tay played for Bolton. There's another player in this team that played for Bolton. Oh, Kevin, Kevin Nolan. Yeah, Kevin, yeah. Uh, Kevin Nolan, the most famous of those three, probably. Oh, is Andy Carroll there at this point? Or is he... No, no. What we need is the left back and an attacking midfielder. And I think otherwise you've got the rest. The attacking midfielder, he might be in the championship. Sheffield United signed him at the beginning of the season. Oh. oh, Ravel Morrison. Yeah, Ravel, the kind of enigma that is Ravel Morrison, who in theory is one of the most talented English footballers ever, but none of us have ever seen it with our own two eyes. Uh, well, sadly, at White Hart Lane we saw it once. but um, Unfortunately for me, I think I must have missed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, well, you watch it back, you probably would find oh, it fun. Oh, oh. um, so it's the, um, what did I say, the left back. Okay, the weirdest left is, back. Like I said, very obscure. I think he played for them for one season. Might even have just like joined in January or something. Um, Wait, is he legend. foreign? Yeah, he's foreign. Joe, you might be onto it. I was going to say he's a legend in his own right. He basically spent his entire career, I think, mostly at one club and then just like tipped up at West Ham. And he was in, he's playing in Eastern Europe before that. Oh, is it Razvan Rat? Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even know he played for them, but it was just the Eastern Europe thing. I know it wasn't um Dirigio Cerna, so that was no, the only was the, the, Dirigio Cerna's fellow Shakhtar fullback, Razvan Yeah, Rang. Great football <laughs> manager and fullback pairing. Absolutely. Well, yeah, nicely done guys. I think you managed <laughs> to get through it. <laughs> So that does bring us to the end of today's podcast. Thanks as ever, Joe, my co-host, for being here. Thank you, Yoni, as well. A special thank you to Chris. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us. How have you enjoyed yourself, Chris? And then otherwise, is there anything you can tell the listeners about some projects or anything else that you have going on at the moment? Yeah, firstly, thank you so much for um, inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Even as Arsenal fans, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, sometimes we have to cross the cross the divide, don't we? Yeah, um, so in terms of projects, the, the main thing to plug is The Extra Inch, which is a Tottenham Hotspur podcast, which I host. There are three of us. Um, Nathan Clark, who is uh, an exceptional analyst. He's, he's brilliant on Twitter. He's even better on our podcast, and we, we love him to bits. And, and then Bardi, who's the, the final member of the team, who is basically there just to hold us to account because he's very sensible and level-headed. And Nathan and I get a bit carried away at times. Uh, so he, he does a sterling job too. Um, so yeah, The Extra Inch is, is a Spurs podcast, but I think we, we, we have a surprising number of, of general football fans who listen as well. And then as, as Joe mentioned at the start, uh, I think I've just started a new podcast called 15 Minutes with Flav and Windy, which is with my, my good friend Flav, who fronts the Fighting Cock podcast, which is the biggest and probably the best Spurs podcast. I say it through gritted teeth because we're rivals now. Um, but Flav is just absolutely brilliant as a podcaster, but also as a 
human being and we're really close friends and this is just us as two very different people with very very different outlooks in the world talking about all kinds of different issues from masculinity to crying to the a-level results that have just come out to all kinds of things so there'll probably be something that, that people will be interested in listening to so just type 15 minutes with flav and windy or just flav and windy into your podcast app and you'll find that yeah lovely and all you need is 15 minutes of free time i guess find chris on twitter he is at windy coys c-o-y-s look out for us there too where we're going to be at blazers fg pod find us on instagram and facebook where we are at blazers for goalposts right it's been a little while since we've had some exclusive music to share with you ending our podcast with a song is something the blazers for goalposts love to do Football is a massive influence in our communities, and of course, so is music. So it's my pleasure to pass things over to Bad Milk and Nisi, who are about to play us off for today's show. Be warned, this track will get you moving. So if you're rhythmically challenged like myself and don't want anybody else to see those moves, you're going to want to find a safe space for the next few minutes. Hi, Bad Milk here. You've been listening to Blazers for Goalposts. To finish off this episode, here's my new single, No Time, featuring Nisi. For someone else From now on I'm just focused on myself I was dumb not to notice And there will be notice So hit up the girls out What is the motive Cause I don't have time for this Cause I don't have time for this So I'll just hit up the girls out What is the motive Something told me you were not the right one Told me all of this would happen But I didn't even want to listen Now I'm in this position It's hard to leave cause we were so attached You're the boy I always want to brag about I don't wanna have these feelings anymore Never was I expecting this to happen Cause you swore and now I'm put up all these words I really don't have time to get hurt I really don't have time to get Just hit up the girls out, what is the motive? Something told me you were not the right one Something told me all of this would happen But I didn't even want to listen Now I'm in this position I put my trust in you Crying to my face is what you don't wanna do I put my heart on the line You make loving, you seem such a crime Told me you were not the right one. Uh. Something told me all of this would happen. Uh. It's the girl, it's the girl. Listen, I don't have time for this. What do you mean? We've had this conversation before. Say no more. Something told me you were not the right one.